So before we get into today's message, just a couple of quick comments. Um, so this little church has existed for about a year, year and a half, and we have a number of children. Actually, we have quite a lot more actually who are not here today. And we have up until now been running kids work once every three weeks. We're now running it every other week, which I think is great in terms of kind of provision for our kids and families. Thank you for those of you who serve out there and for serving in our teams. Um, And it just means that the way we're going to do it, we feel like they need a little bit longer together. So it means when we have kids work on, we're going to just change the format of the morning a little bit, have a slightly shorter time of worship at the start, a bit longer at the end for ministry. So we're going to have more time to respond and pray together. So one of the things that we believe as a church is that we do believe God's here. We do believe that he wants to move amongst us. He can do that whenever he likes, all week, right? But also there's a, there's a thing about grabbing the moment after a message, hearing God's word and praying with one another. So we will offer to pray with each other and we'll have a little bit more time for that. So when we have Redeemer Kids, we'll have a little bit more time. Um, if you are serving in the kids' work, thank you so much. Those of you who are serving in teams, we thank you. We love that. And if you're not, feel free to step in. We, there's always stuff to do here. So that would be great. Okay. Last week started a new series. We're looking at the Gospel of Luke. We're going to kind of do that for quite a while now. And we jumped in at Luke 3. We did not start at Luke 1 because in December we're going to kind of like do a bit of a kind of like Christmas kind of series where we will kind of go in reverse and go back to the start of Luke and other uh, Gospels. But we jumped in at Luke 3. And in Luke 3 you have the story of the ministry of John the Baptist or Luke's account of that. And what you see, or one of the things that we drew out, was that the gospel and the kingdom is both radically inclusive and also radically exclusive all at the same time. Radically inclusive in the sense that Jesus absolutely redefines who access to God is for. It's not for people from a certain ethnic background. It's not for people of a certain heritage. Actually, Jesus completely redefines it. And you see that in terms of what John says what Jesus says, what his ministry is like. And you see it completely inclusive. And in Luke 3, you see people, all sorts of people coming now to John to be baptized. And he says, everybody needs to be baptized. I don't care where you're from. You all need to get clean, basically. Right? So no us and them anymore. It's just him and us, basically. So he redefines it. And yet at the same time, the kingdom is radically exclusive. And this is the bit that the world particularly struggles with. Because John is saying, if you're going to receive Jesus, you have to receive him as a king. You don't get to define who he is. He defines who he is. You have to shape your life according to him, not the other way around. And that is the challenge of the kingdom and the gospel. It's both inclusive and exclusive. And one of the challenges for us as a church together as we plant this church is that we want to be both those things. right? We want to be completely inclusive. Anybody can come. We come as we are, we bring our stuff. And yet at the same time, we want to be completely true to what we see God's word being, that actually we want to shape our lives according to what he says, not the other way around. We're not going to bow to culture, otherwise culture becomes king, right? But if we're saying Jesus is king, then we have to shape the way we do church and the way we are together according to what we see in his word. And that makes us completely inclusive, and at times actually quite exclusive at the same time, which is a difficult balance to get, right? So we want to be honestly, thoroughly committed to his word and what we see the gospel saying and being, and yet completely open that anyone can come. So 
There you go. There's a little bit from Luke 3. Now, Luke 4. So if you've got a Bible, we're going to read from verse 14. Don't worry, it's going to come up on the screen if you don't. And you may, if you have got a Bible, you might want to just kind of find Isaiah 61. Because in Luke 4, Jesus quotes Isaiah 61. And what's interesting is, he kind of quotes it, but he doesn't quite quote it. And that's part of the interesting thing about the chapter, okay? But we're going to read from uh, verse 14. And it says this, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everybody praised him. And he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found a place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him and he began by saying this, Today... This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself and you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there are many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet none of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All these people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill, on which the town was built, in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. So Sarah and I grew up in the UK. Many of you will know that. And in the UK, and I'm sure a number of us will have this similar kind of system, different, maybe not every nation represented, but in the UK, every so often there is a general election where you get to vote on who's going to come to power in your nation. That's not true of every country in the world, but for some of us that is true. And then it comes around every kind of three to seven years in the UK, right? And as they're building up to a general election, typically political parties all do the same thing. They have a big gathering. They get their leader up. They've had a little team meeting with their PR person, and they come up with a slogan. In the UK, they tend to be fairly poor slogans like, make Britain better, or something someone's been being paid a lot of money to come up with that. I mean, I could have come up with that myself. And they basically, at these political moments, they announce their manifesto. This is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. This is how we're going to make Britain better. And everybody stands up and gives them a big round of applause and hope they're going to get elected. And that's kind of how it works. And they are basically unveiling their manifesto. While Luke 4 is kind of like Jesus unveiling his manifesto. The difference is, No one applauds, no one stands up, no one likes what he's saying. Which is weird, right? Because Jesus is announcing incredibly good news, yet what they hear is incredibly bad news. And the gospel is like that, right? 
The kingdom is incredible good news, the proclamation and demonstration of good news, the release of freedom is good news, and yet it can provoke incredibly strong reactions. Sorry, my iPad is just... Oh, there we go. The gospel message confronts us. Every time I speak, my iPad is going, I'm going to switch this off. (laughs) The gospel message confronts us with who we are, and it also shows us who he is. It shows us how powerful and sovereign he is, and it shows us not only how loved we are, but also how broken we are. And we struggle with it. We love it, and we struggle with it. And the people in Luke 4 struggle as well. The gospel and the kingdom message is both incredibly attractive but also incredibly challenging. It's beautiful yet offensive at the same time. It is the pearl of great price. It's going to be better than anything you can ever have and yet it's going to cost you everything. And Luke 4, people react, they become angry. Which is strange as well because Jesus is the one they've been waiting for. They've been waiting for this. The prophets have foretold that there will be one who comes where God's rule comes in a new way, a pivotal moment in history, and God's kingdom comes and his rule comes. But what you discover is the people don't really want God to come and be king and to rule. What they want is God to come and help them and do their thing. That's what they want. They don't really want a king. They want a helper. They don't really want God's agenda. They want God to serve their agenda. And therefore, they do not like what Jesus brings. So when I was growing up, we used to go to kind of Christian camps, Bible week. So I remember when I was about 14, I went to this one Bible week. And typically in our youth group, there were kind of kids from all different kind of like backgrounds. And some kids were like really on fire for God. Some were completely uninterested, somewhere somewhere in the middle, which is kind of my zone, somewhere in the middle. I was kind of like neither one or the other. I think it says something in Revelation about people like that. But anyway, I was somewhere in the middle. And I remember one night, you were supposed to stay in your tent at night. Yeah, that's what you're supposed to do. But obviously there was always someone who did the kind of like, did the run. And there was one particular lad who got out of his tent with his mate. And they wandered off into the car park. And they sat on this car's bonnet. And as they sat on the bonnet, the alarm went off. Right? <laughs> so he told this story the next day. So the alarm was going off. And they're like, this kid was like, he was like, right, you're kind of on the edge of everything. So he's like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? So him and his mate prayed. I, th- I think they swore as they prayed as well. They're like, God, please get us out of this beep, beep, beep. Okay, and the alarm apparently went straight off. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus switched off the car alarm. Okay, I think the car alarm could have just gone off. I don't know. But I remember the next day him telling us this story about how they'd been in the car park in the middle of the night. They're terrified security about to show up and they pray and the alarm goes off. And it's just funny because you kind of think, oh, that's kind of how we treat God sometimes, isn't it? It's like, I'm just getting on with my life. Something goes wrong. God, can you get us me out of this thing? Great. And then you kind of get on with your life. And that's what Israel kind of wanted. They wanted God to come and get them out of their things, sort their stuff out, and then to be able to get on with their life. In Jesus' day, when Jesus reads this scripture in Luke 4, it's helpful to understand something of the context he was reading. So in Jesus' day, the Jewish people were waiting for, desperate for, a deliverer to come. They knew their scriptures, right? They are waiting for the Messiah to come, and they are desperate for the Messiah to come and kick out the Romans. They are an occupied nation. Okay? They knew the prophets had foretold someone, and so they are waiting for a deliverer to come to free them from their occupiers, from the Romans, to restore the fortunes of the people. So that is the kind of, it's a quite a nationalistic kind of atmosphere 
that Jesus was born into. And Nazareth was that kind of place. You know there's certain cities or towns in any country where the kind of like the political thing is just notched up. Yeah? If there's trouble or if there's going to be some kind of like thing going on kicking off, it's going to be in that town. You know those kind of towns in your in your home country? Well, Nazareth was that kind of place. So Nazareth, they reckon, scholars reckon, was kind of formed during the Maccabean Revolt. So it, in its very DNA, which was a revolt against the Romans before the birth of Jesus, so in its very DNA as a town is this kind of nationalistic fervor to kind of kick out the Romans. Let's stand up, let's, get, let's deliver ourselves, let's get them out. And that's the place. And Jesus, therefore, in Luke 4... Hometown boy stands up in his hometown, the town that had this in its very DNA, and then he gets to read from Isaiah 61. Okay, Isaiah 61 is not some unknown little bit of scripture. Isaiah 61 is like, yeah, we love this one. This is like their favorite passage, right? Because if you read Isaiah 61 and you read it through, what does it look like if you've ever seen it? It looks like there is a deliverer coming who's going to get rid of our oppressors, who's going to inflict judgment on our enemies, who's going to do basically to them what they've done to us for decades and centuries now. So it talks about a deliverer coming is going to, going to deal with our enemies. Not only that, if you read on in Isaiah 61, not only does he get to deal with the enemies, but the enemies now become our servants and they serve us. So they love Isaiah 61. Because it's basically the story of what's going to happen. We're going to get delivered. So Jesus, the hometown boy, stands up in the town that is like absolutely on edge waiting for something to happen. He reads from the passage, right, about the deliverer coming and how the enemies are going to get kicked out. You need to understand that when you read this passage. So that when he reads Isaiah 61, they all sit up. You know, you know when you hear a preacher, and I'm not saying it's happening this morning, but you're kind of like, oh, there's other ones. You're like, okay, they are all like, okay, I am engaged. Oh, let's go. Let's ready. Let's do it, Jesus. But they don't get what they expect. He doesn't say what they want him to say, and Jesus keeps doing this in the gospel. He does not act in the way that everybody wants him to act. Firstly, Jesus edits the passage did you know that so i don't know if you've got isaiah 61 open but it's worth you having a little look at it because what you find is jesus leaves bits out he changes some bits and he stops short of saying the things that they want him to say crucially he stops short because jesus misses the punchline the bit they all love yeah yeah the spirit of the lord is upon me he's going to preach good news oh yeah 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 and the year of God's favor, yes, and the day of vengeance is the bit they all love, right? That's the punchline. Let's get to that bit because that's where, great, he's going to come with vengeance. Jesus stops short of saying it. The very last thing Jesus says in Luke 4 is to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Stop. It's like, what? It's like singing half a song. It's like they're sitting there going, what is he doing? It's like you've missed the best line. This, this is the line we're all waiting for. Jesus goes, finishes on and declares the year of the Lord's favor, and he sits down. Now, just to be clear, Jesus is not saying Isaiah 61 is wrong. What he's saying is Isaiah 61 is in two parts. 
there is a season of a declaration of favour and jubilee and one day there will be judgment. But he's saying they are not happening in the same moment. That is why he stopped short. But they're like, you missed the punchline. He rolls up the scroll, hands it back and sits down. Now, in the NIV version we've just read, it says they all spoke well of him. Uh, which is a little bit confusing. And actually, if you, read, if you read what scholars say, what they say is actually in the Greek, it's not that clear what that means. Okay? So it might mean that they were looking, listening to him going, ah, oh, look, it's Joseph's son. Hasn't he done well? Yeah? You know, like when you see people who haven't seen you for about 40 years, they go, oh, you've really grown. You know that kind of stuff? So our youngest, Ben, he's a, a monstrously big boy now. Last, this summer, when we took him back to the UK, just because he's grown about two meters in a year, everyone's like, oh, he's really, really grown. So you kind of get that sense. It could either be that all going, oh, look, it's Jesus is one of our boys, isn't he? Isn't he done well? Or they may be saying, isn't that Jesus from Joseph's son from our town? He should know better. Okay? So scholars actually go, it's not clear how to interpret that passage in terms of their reaction. What is clear, though, is Jesus is getting a reaction. And true to form, Although he has sat down, he hasn't finished. <laughs> so he sits down, rolls the scroll up, gives it back, but he carries on. And what he does now is Jesus decides to talk about history. So he goes, I'm going to talk about Elijah and Elisha. Okay? And Elijah and Elisha are like two of Israel's most kind of prominent prophets. They're like, great, okay, maybe he'll get this one right. Okay, maybe Jesus is going to get this bit right. And he's going he's gonna to talk about two prophets. Great. Okay. But what Jesus does is he doesn't really talk about Elijah and Elisha. He ends up talking about two other characters. Have you noticed that? He talks about a woman and he talks about a leper. <laughs> and he commends them for their faith and he lifts them up as an example. In other words, rather than talking about justice and judgment coming on the Gentiles, which is what they're expecting him to preach out of Isaiah 61. What he does is he stops short, declares the year of the Lord's favor, and then he goes, I'm going to elevate two characters from the Old Testament. One was a woman, a Gentile woman, and one's a Gentile military leader. And he lifts them up and elevates them as heroes. They're like, what is going on? Jesus has taken a passage that they thought was all about deliverance from their enemies, and instead he is delivering a message of hope and of freedom and of release for everybody who will come to him. In other words, he takes a message about judgment and turns it into a message about grace. And the people hate it. (laughs) The people absolutely hate it because God is saving the wrong people. That's why they hate it. God's not doing what he is supposed to be doing. God is saving the wrong people. Now, if this is supposed to be a PR time, you know, where Jesus is delivering the manifesto, Jesus is not doing a good job, right? Jesus should have stopped a long time ago in this. He is not helping his cause. But true to form, Jesus then keeps going. He doesn't stop. Yeah, you can imagine the people around him going, you need to stop now. Jesus is like, it's not going well. Stop. But Jesus doesn't stop. He carries on. Then he says this, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am not simply another prophet. 
Like, I'm not just Elijah or Elisha. I'm not just one of your prophets. I'm not here just to herald and announce something or to point towards something. I'm not John the Baptist. He said, I am the inaugurator, the bringer of the kingdom. I'm the kingdom bringer. That's why he said, he just, he says, you know, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I am the kingdom bringer. I'm going to set captives free. I'm going to proclaim good news and I will bring freedom. That's what he says. And specifically, he announces three things. First one, he says this is, I have come to announce good news to the poor. Now, when he says that, he's not just saying, I've come to help economically poor people, although it does include that. What he's saying is, anybody who's marginalized, anybody who's poor in spirit, anybody who's broken, anybody who's excluded, anybody who's considered on the outside, that's who he's talking about. I think I've probably said this before, but when I grew up, when we did PE at school, and I quite like PE, our PE teachers had this thing where they would make people choose teams. Yeah? And they'd, they'd t- typically be male PE teachers, and they would pick their two or three favourite boys, and they'd make them pick the teams, and it was always like a horrible experience because there was always two or three lads left at the end that nobody wanted on their teams. Yeah? Did anybody else do that in their schools? Is this a kind of British idea or did anybody else? It's just a horrible way of shaming people. It's awful. And you'd have this bunch of who are in and this bunch who are out, basically, and shamed. And Jesus is saying, I've come to bring good news to anybody who's out. Anybody who doesn't get picked. Anybody who's not wanted. Anybody who doesn't look right, sound right, smell right. I've come for good news specifically for the marginalized. And then he says this. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free. Now, it's worth knowing that that last phrase is a lift out of Isaiah 58. And Isaiah 58 is specifically about what Israel fails to do. Israel fails to look after the oppressed and fails to follow Sabbath rules. Kenneth Bailey, who's written a couple of, well, a number of books, but a couple of brilliant books. One's called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, Paul Through Middle Eastern Eyes. When he talks about this passage, what he says is Isaiah 58 was specifically written for people who are in exile. In other words, who are living away from home. So when he reads that and says that, what he's saying is anybody who is in captivity away from home, I've come to bring you home, to get you out of captivity and get you home. They would have heard that. Anybody in exile. So you put those two things together. Jesus is saying to the Jews, I have come to fulfill what Israel could never do. Isaiah 58. I have come to do what Israel was never able to fulfill. And to you and me, what he's saying is, I have come to do what you could never do for yourselves. I've come to free people where you cannot free yourself, where you cannot free the people in bondage around you. I have come to free you. We live in the world of self-help, don't we? <laughs> right? And there are things we can do to help ourselves. There is some wisdom in that. But ultimately, fundamentally, we need freeing. Right? 
there are certain things we cannot do for ourselves. And Jesus is saying, I've come for anybody who is far away from God. You were made to know him, to live in deep connection to him, to have your lives orbit around him. And I have come for anybody who feels estranged from God, who is far away, and I've come to bring you home. Why? This is the final thing. Because, Jesus says, I'm announcing the year of the Lord's favour. Okay? Some of you may know what that is referring to, but in Leviticus, the year of the Lord's favour uh, relates to the year of Jubilee. And in Jubilee, every 50th year in Israel, like all the debts, all the debts are kind of cleared, all the things you've lost are restored to you, all your birth dates are restored to you, things that you had lost as a family are given back. It is the year of Jubilee. It's like everything is cleared and you get to start again. So when Jesus says, I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, what he's saying is everything you've lost, everything you should have had, everything you've lost on the journey where you blew it or your family blew it, not just financially, spiritually, where you're bankrupt, I have come to restore it to you. Jesus declares it. And inaugurates this incredible message of forgiveness, of release, and of rescue, and of a homecoming, and of a new start. Like it's it's incredible good news. What does it mean for us? Okay, it means a few things. It means if I can talk about us for a moment, it means that part of why we exist as a church is to do what Jesus talks about in Luke 4. So John says, Jesus says in John 20, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I send you. In other words, his mission, his intentions, his aims now become ours. Right? So what his manifesto is becomes ours. So one of the reasons why God has called us to plant a church together, I think, is to do this kind of thing. Right? So last Thursday marked two years since we moved to the Netherlands, where Sarah and the boys, I came slightly later. And we are incredibly grateful for God's call and his sense of guidance. I mean, it's been very challenging two years and a very exciting two years as well. And we are super grateful for this community. But part of the call on us as a community is not just to have a great sense of family and connection together. It is to do exactly what Jesus talks about in Luke 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to do what? Proclaim good news to the poor. Proclaim freedom for prisoners. Recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So everything we do as a community needs to line up with those things. How is what we're doing lining up with that agenda? That's what we're about. And that's what we need to be about. So that's part of what the call is. But also another part of the call is that we're called to work for justice in the city. So there's a sense in which we want to be a community where people can come home spiritually and know God and find forgiveness, the year of jubilee in our own lives. But also there is a sense in which we are called as a community to work for justice. That will mean sometime in the future, I'm sure we will do some kind of ministries which are justice-related ministries, where we work on behalf of trying to help people who are disadvantaged and marginalized, because that's part of the gospel call. But it also means individually some of us are going to work directly in those areas. Some of you already do. There is a call on some of us that part of our work will be to work 
on the behalf of the disadvantaged, to lift people up, to work in areas of justice. But the truth is, all of us can work in areas of justice as well. You might be a teacher, an accountant, you may be at home, you might be retired, I don't know. But all of us will touch issues of injustice, right? We will see it, we'll know when it's happening, there'll be people around us who are disadvantaged, and part of the call on us is to speak up for those who don't have a voice. And to do it, we will need to be just like Jesus in the sense of we will need to be full of the Spirit. It's interesting, just as I've read this passage quite a few times this week, it's just struck me how he says, it says actually at the start of the chapter, Jesus returned full of the Spirit. And then he says, obviously he quotes Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And we don't get to do this kind of stuff unless the presence of God is working in our midst. Some of you have been to our house. We live in a lovely house in the north of Rotterdam. And on our, on our street, there is a kind of, I'm not sure you can call it a river, but there's water right down the middle of our street. And there are trees on either side. And the river, if you like, gives life to all the trees. There's something about the water that gives life and fertility to all the areas around it. And if you read through the Bible, you'll find again and again, water is often symbolic of God's presence. There's rivers. You know, Psalm 1, Psalm 46, right in the garden at the start. Revelation 22. In Revelation 22, there's a river flowing from the throne of God. And it says the tree of life is there and the leaves of the tree of life are for the healing of the nations. There's something of the call of healing to come out of the church, but it is connected to our ability to live by the river. Right? If you want to live a life where you're living out Jesus' call in your life, you have to live by the river. How do you live by the river? Well, you live by the river by being connected to a church, being part of a small group, being with other Christians, praying, putting yourself where God is, in other words. Reading his word, praying, being connected. If you want to be by the river, get where the river is, in other words. We live near a river, another one, just beyond us. If you want to get in the water, surprisingly, you have to go there. It's no good saying, oh, there's a nice river there, I really would like to swim there. And if you don't go... So I'm not interested in this church saying to people, oh, you've all got to be part of a small group so that we have... No, I'm interested in people being in the river. Because if we're near the river... That's where all the flourishing comes. And if the flourishing comes, that's where people's lives get changed. My life, your life, the people's lives around us. So get near the river, because the river is where all the life is. And when we pray together at the week of prayer, we're going to pray, aren't we? We're going to say, God, we, we need you. We want your agenda to be put on our hearts. We don't want to just do church. We want to do the things you're talking about in Luke 4. And we know that it's embryonic for us and starting for us. And it's going to look different than when you're in a much bigger church. We know all that. But actually, there's a real opportunity at this scale to embody the things that we see here. So, but what does it mean for me right now? How do I respond to what Jesus says in Luke 4? Because the people cannot deal with what Jesus says. Right? They cannot cope with it at all. They hate it. And sometimes we read those passages and we go, I can't believe they didn't understand 
You know, we have a slightly superior, like, come on, it's obvious what he's doing. You know, why get on board? Why are you being so funny with Jesus? Right? And yet we, we kind of miss the reactions in our own heart. And part of the issue for them is they don't understand who he is. Because if you read through the passage, what they keep saying is, isn't this, isn't this Joseph's son? Like, how can he, how can he do, it's Joseph's son. Like, what's he saying? How can he short, not say the whole of Isaiah 61? How can he change it? How can he say it's fulfilled? That's Joseph's son. And yet, if you read through Luke, Luke keeps saying, he's not Joseph's son. <laughs> so you know the genealogy bit, where you get all the, so-and-so gave birth to so-and-so, was so-and-so's father, and you kind of go, oh, yeah, okay. I'm not, I'm not a big fan of the kind of like, so-and-so was so-and-so's son, you know. But actually, what you realize is, it's very clear, Jesus is not Joseph's son. When Jesus is in the wilderness, it's very clear, Jesus is not Joseph's son. Again and again, Luke keeps saying, he's not actually Joseph's son. Why? Because you've got to know who he is. Because if you don't know who he is, you'll never accept him. You will never accept his message. Because his message tells you not only how loved you are, but how broken, how totally impotent we are in terms of changing ourselves. It's like having, you know those mirrors where you look at and kind of go, <gasps> you know, there are certain lights which are just like a bit frightening because it's, oh my goodness, I can see every blemish. Some of you don't know what that's like at all, but I know what that's like. Well, the gospel sometimes is like, oh my goodness. We'll never accept him unless we understand who he is. That's why in John 6, when Jesus teaches about the bread of life, and in John 6 he goes, I'm the bread of life, come down from heaven. He says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they're all like, what is this? This is craziness. And so they leave, hundreds of them leave him because it's just like, this is just way too much. Like, there's no way we can do this. And it, it is like, an, it's a lesson in not trying to court favor with the crowds. He just tells them straight and they're like, we're out. And then it's interesting, he turns to the disciples and he says, are you going to leave as well? Are you going? And this is what Simon Peter says. And Simon Peter is always the one who speaks up first. And he's pretty much either puts his foot right in his mouth or he gets it right. And this is what he says. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I love this. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. I love that because it's like, I have come to the point. It's taken me a while, right? I've got questions. I've got doubts. I'm not sure, but I've come to a place of conviction where I believe this is who you are. So where else are we going to go? Yeah? Where else are we going to go? I got to that point in my life. I'm like, I don't, it's not that I don't ever have questions, but I'm like, where else am I going to go? I have come to believe that you are the Holy One of God. Maybe you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus. And maybe today is a day where you might do that. You might go, okay, I've come to believe that you are. I don't know all the answers to all the questions, but I believe that's who you are. Or maybe you're here today and you gave your life to Jesus a long time ago. But the truth is there are areas of your life where he is not king. Yeah? It could be a relational part. It could be a financial thing. It could be an issue around anger. I don't know what it is. But you'll know if the Holy Spirit is going, that bit there. That bit there, you're still king. You don't let his kingdom in because that's your kingdom, right? No, 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 no. I keep this bit, Jesus. I'll have your help on those bits. Thanks very much. He's not the king then, is he? And maybe today the Holy Spirit is just saying to you, you've got to let him in. 
going to bow the knee because Jesus comes to set prisoners free, to bring liberation and bring us home. So I'd love us to stand. We're going to pray.